At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 680th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has written a coming-of-age memoir around her love of farming. We're talking with Megan Baxter about finding where you belong. Megan has won numerous awards, including a Pushcart Prize. Her work has been listed in the Best American Essays of 2019. Congratulations. She serves as a mentor to young writers and loves developing cross-genre and innovative creative writing pedagogy for her workshops and classes. She lives in New Hampshire, where she loves walking her dog, running and cooking with local foods from her permaculture homestead. She teaches writing at Colby Sawyer College and Southern New Hampshire University and is starting her own small farm where she will put to use more than 20 years of organic farming experience. Megan is the author of Farm Girl, a memoir published by Green Writers Press. Welcome to the show today, Megan. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You bet. I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to where you are today? I grew up on the banks of the Connecticut River between New Hampshire and Vermont. And my first job when I was 15 was biking from my parents' house across a bridge over the river to the farm where I picked strawberries and was paid by the court. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I thought that was just the best thing ever that I got to be outdoors. I uh, got to make a little bit of money and I got to hang out with some really cool kids who were the sort of people I I hadn't met when I was in high school, just other people who love being outdoors as much as I did. And Over the course of many summers, I kept coming back to the farm and the book itself chronicles a year in which I decided to leave my traditional college path and come back to working at the farm full time, first as a field hand and then as a production manager of the full 40 acre operation. And from there, I've gone on to to write manage urban farms as well as small homesteads and continue to learn more about farming every season. So you've actually been a farmer farming and growing food for people. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Tell me me more about that. Well, so the the farm that's chronicled in the book, Cedar Circle Farm, it's still in operation. Uh, I was a 40 acre organic fruit and vegetable farm that did uh, perennials and bedding plants, as well as some ornamentals and cut flowers. And we grew the farm from having a seven person CSA to at the high water mark around 300. Uh, wow. Had a farm stand that was on site, as well as attending three farmers markets. 
and adding on winter CSAs. And, you know, we, we tried a little bit of everything during my time there. And then at the urban farm in South Carolina, the people that I were, was feeding were specifically those who lived in food deserts and places where they were challenged to find access to fresh produce. And back again in New England, I help out at a friend's farm. They do a lot of wholesale pepper cultivation and make their own amazing hot sauce, as well as sell to a lot of other hot sauce producers on the Eastern seaboard. And I'm embarking on growing food for myself, my family and small farmers market community here in my town. Nice. Have you done a farmer's market before? I have so many times I I cannot count. So one of the fun things about coming to this new farm is that I've kind of seen the business from so many different angles that I can plan ahead and make sure that I'm only getting myself into what I'm actually interested in doing. Right. (laughs) So I'm setting myself up, I think, in a good place that my mother who lives nearby still is going to come and be my the chatty person at the farmer's market booth. She's very good at that. And uh, I'll be making sure everything looks nice and answering farmer questions. But I know enough about the farmer's market that you've got to have that person who wants to say hi to everybody. And that's definitely my mom. (laughs) Nice. Well, when I went back to college, I went back to college at the age of 39. One of the things that I did was I farmed my front and backyard here in Phoenix I harvested it every Wednesday morning. I'd get up uber early, like 3.30 in the morning, and I'd go out in the yard. I'd harvest everything that was available and be to the farmer's market by 9 a.m. Well, that's great. Yeah, Yeah. I intend to have some early Saturday mornings here myself. Yeah, cool. So your book, your memoir, covers a year. Why did you decide to focus on one year? The book is just a one-year story because I realized in the writing process that my relationship with farming and with working outdoors and selling produce and managing people and plants has changed so much over the I realized this morning that this is my 20th growing season, my 20th spring being involved in in agriculture. And I couldn't enter into the story of this specific time in my life, knowing all the things that would come ahead and also some of the material that had preceded this. So I, I wanted to stay really closely focused to the decision I made to leave a traditional college career path and shift to being a full-time farmer. Nice. Now you said something interesting a moment ago. You're counting your years you've been growing. And you said you said the 20th growing season that you've and the reason I, I brought that up is because that's the way I look at my life. And I'm I'm 61 years old. Mm. I have a limited amount of growing seasons left. So I I I'd just like for you to speak to that. Yeah, I don't know if we need to segue into a big conversation about mortality, but here I am in my my mid 30s and I'm kind of hyper aware of being at that point in my life where I'm kind of standing on the balance of things that were and things that will be and being in a real middle point. And I I count up the years here is it, in New England it's an incredibly seasonal growing pattern where we we have these winters that you can grow in them, but uh, it really, you can feel the whole earth sort of shutting down and taking a rest. Uh, and the spring is such a powerful energy. And having seeded my my little tomatoes that I'm going to graft for my hoop house, I was just aware that this was a cycle that I'd been engaged with for 
now over half of my life. So I, I put a year on it, uh, but I definitely, I like the idea of, of counting seasons, counting springs, falls, and, and right. also the jobs that are associated with it, like seeding the first tomatoes or harvesting strawberries. Yeah. Wow. And you had a light bulb moment. Mm, yeah. I had a, I hope that I've had several. Uh, but <laughs> in the in the book, the light bulb moment for me came when I realized that I had already found my place. You know, when you're when you're a young person, you're you're always out there questing and you're looking to new horizons and and you're trying to find where it is you belong in the world. And for me, the the place that I belonged was a place I had been working every summer since I was 15. It was the farm in Vermont. And I realized while going to school out in Portland, Oregon, that that wasn't where I needed to be or what I needed to be doing with my time, that my community and my calling was back on these 40 acres of of land. Nice. In the book, you talk about struggling to balance two personas, Mm -hmm. the farm girl and the girl with the pearls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me about that. So I, I, I think I've become more accustomed to shifting between occupations and and my roles in the in the world but as a young woman I was I was hyper aware that there was a particular way that I had to act and look when I was in say an academic setting versus mm. the way that I got to behave and dress and look when I worked outside at a farm and for for me it meant when i was going to school that i would put on my little pearl earrings and my j crew button down and be all neat and tidy then at the farm i could really be myself and wear whatever i wanted speak whatever way i wanted didn't have to sit up straight in the front of the room so it, there was a little bit of subversion there that that farming allowed me but i think at the time it really felt like the farming me was the authentic version of myself and the the character that I was dressing up as this, this girl who sort of checked all the boxes and did all the things correctly, got the good grades was, was somebody that I was, that I was play acting as. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, it, that it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. I always love it when I bring authors on and they can read me something from their memoir. Can I ask you to do that? Yes, of course. I'm going to read from towards the end of the book where I work up enough confidence that I can actually tell people my plan rather than just dream about going back to the farm. So I'll just jump right in. This is from the 20th chapter. I called my mother and told her that I was leaving school to become a farmer. I could feel her body tensing through the cell phone. I don't remember our words, just her disappointment. I tried to make excuses and promises I thought her silence was anger over my quitting school and that I had let her down. She didn't see farming as I did. After all, she'd escaped being a farm girl. Mom grew up in a little town where one school housed every grade. The town is tucked in the folds of the Green Mountains, high above the Connecticut Valley in a landscape called the Northeast Kingdom, or just the kingdom, if you are local. I assumed as a girl that its name referred to heaven but it was the last place she wanted to live. Most of her classmates stayed there, married young and took over farms that had been in their families for generations. They managed big dairy lots with corn and hay fields, messy barns and scattered outbuildings, drafty rooms cluttered with broken toys and stacks of bills. In late high school, she escaped to Burlington on the shores of Lake Champlain, 
playing in the state's youth orchestra. She kept her concert dress in the car so it wouldn't smell like a farmyard. My mother imagined farming as a death sentence. She'd seen it break bodies and understood how limbs could be eaten by combines and balers or backs hunched while skin cancer spread like the pink off-road diesel over farmers' faces and arms. I just don't understand, she said. You wouldn't, I replied. We just want you to be happy, she said. I am happy, but what I should have said is, I will be happy. What does happiness even look like, I wondered. Happiness, I thought, is sunlight, dirty hands, worked muscle fiber pulling tight to the bone, sweat on my upper lip, heavy fruit to carry, sweetness, berries, tomato juice dripping, watching sunrise over the same land, knowing the time by the shadow's lengths, the land calling, needing, wanting me, a farm girl. With animals, it's called husbandry, but there is no word for the female vegetable grower married to the land. Wow. All right. You had me in tears there right at the beginning, <laughs> especially the, the parent part. You know, my, my mom escaped a farm mm. and married my dad in the early 60s. And, you know, they really strived. They, they lived a very poor life, life early on, and they really strived to bring more. And my dad became a financial planner and wanted me to take his over his financial planning business. And I kept telling him, I remember this about 20 years ago, I kept telling him, dad, see these hands? These are farmer's hands. <laughs> And they, they too, I don't, I think they came to a place in their life where they accepted me for that, but I don't think they ever understood it. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like your mom from your sharing a little earlier has come to a place to understand this is, do you think she's accepted it? I think she has definitely accepted it and seen all the nuances to it. You know, when I, when the book is written, it's um, set in 2008. And in this part of the world, the organic market farming was really a novelty in a lot of ways. And the farming she had familiarity with was big, not, not fully industrialized, but, but large dairy farming, which is a very different lifestyle mm -hmm. and a very different rhythm to your days. And I think she's seen that it can be successful. My youngest sister is actually in farming as well. She's in food security. She works with uh, gleaning and access in, wow. in Burlington, Vermont. So mm -hmm. it, it's definitely something that's permeated our family now. And she loves it. She loves being part of all the cooking and putting together of, of big family meals. So, yeah, I think she's definitely okay with it at this point. Nice. And really what you're doing here is you're, well, we were cultivating a relationship with the land. You have your new space. Mm -hmm. I have my new space in Asheville. I've got four acres that we just recently purchased and we're moving there. And, and so can you describe cultivating this relationship? Yeah, I, it's something that I feel has been innate to me since I was a little girl. I've always been outside as much as I can. I had the good luck of growing up in a, in a suburban area that bordered on rural second growth pine forest. And my, my parents let me run wild. I, I spent all my time outside. And I, I think the, the place where my writing and my, and my love of the land connect is an observation. I have always liked being outside and just looking and seeing, hearing things. 
And I, I think that's also shows up in my fiction and nonfiction as well. It's interesting being in a new space that hasn't been cultivated and, and that I've had to ask myself and ask the space, what can be built here and what can be produced in this spot sustainably, because it's, it's really made me shift my production modes that I'm familiar with to better meet what is available in the property itself. But it's work that I love doing. My mom says it skips a generation. <laughs> Her father right. was the, was the farmer, but just the, the daily routine, you know, waking up this morning with my dog and going out to check my sap buckets and fill up a five gallon bucket and walk around in the woods. Like I, I love just the everyday connection that it provides. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned sap buckets. That's off of maples, right? That's off of maples. So you can, you can tap many maple species. The sugar maple has the most sugar content in its sap. So it's more efficient. And I happen to have a couple old sugar maples over by where I believe the, either a barn or a homestead was located on this property. And then I have red maples, which a lot of people tap for sugar as well. So I'm going to be boiling them, uh, boiling my buckets of sap down to make maple syrup on an outdoor evaporator. Hopefully this weekend, I'll do my first outdoor boil. Oh, nice. Awesome. (laughs) So let's shift a little bit and For any young people who are out there that are confused about what they should be doing, what jobs they should apply for, what they should study in school, what is your advice for finding your true calling? Well, as a college professor, I'm I'm uniquely able to say to my students that what you study in school is not like is not a death sentence. It's not the thing you will do and nothing (laughs) else. And I, I think there's such a sense of finality when you're a young person that you you know you decided that you were a business major and thus you shall only do business. The world is constantly in flux and that we're always growing and changing and shifting our, our focus. I would say that finding meaningful work, something that you want to wake up and participate in is the most essential part of figuring out what that is for you. And whether that's something that your family wants you to do or something that you feel called to, at the end of the day, having that passion for your career is what's going to make you a happy person, I hope. It's what's made me enjoy my day to day. Yeah. Uh, What gets you up in the morning? Yeah, it's, it's the what gets me up in the, well, literally what gets me up in the morning is my dog who needs food. Um, (laughs) Right. The lab. So she's her, her life is very food regulated, but I, I like to, I love to teach. I love to share. I love to grow. I think that that's at the heart of all of it. I either, whether it's a student's interest in in writing and composition or whether it's going outside and engaging with food production on my property. Uh, I love the process of, of growing and, and, and being part of that big cycle. Yeah. For someone interested in learning how to grow their own food, what you know, what do you offer in terms of advice? I think with the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people who've become incredibly interested in growing their own food. Amen to that. uh, Right. I happened to be in a place during the first lockdown in 2020, where I was not growing my own food. It was the one season that I have not had Mm. access to a garden plot. And I felt that just so intensely, that separation between food production and food security and this gap can't exist any further in my life. I would say work at a farm, work at a, 
work at a business locally, read, try it out on your own. The difference in scale is something that a lot of people struggle with going from having a few patio tomatoes to actually having a plot that's large enough to produce what a family might want to eat in a year. And my other suggestion is to examine what you're currently eating and where that's coming from. Um, Mm. The way that we expect our diet to look today is very different than even my mother grew up um, in the sixties in in rural Vermont remembers things like bananas and oranges being only available around Christmas uh, in the grocery stores. Um, And our need, for instance, to have avocados in New England every every day of the year is, is a big ask of the planet. And it's also something that you won't be able to produce for yourself in this space. Right. Well, and have you seen the news about avocados in the past couple of weeks? I have. I actually begin one of my writing classes uh, by asking my students to have an argument about something um, <laughs> because young oh, wow. people today are so afraid of being confrontational. And the, the topic we talked about yesterday was avocados and avocado embargoes. And do we have a right to have access to avocados? They were, they were very incest about it. So I've heard all the drama. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 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 And, uh, you know, memoirs are usually left to people older but you've written your book in your thirties. If someone is looking to tell their own true story, how do they begin? So yes, I'm not, I have not reached the, the end of my life and I'm looking back, but I have moved away in a pretty significant manner from the woman that I was at the time that I wrote the book. So this is, the Mm -hmm. book is about 15, 16 years in the past and having that distance is essential to telling a story in memoir. So it can't be something that is currently being written about in the everyday. It has to be mm. something you can look back on and say, man, I would have tried, I would have done that differently, or I wish I knew then what I do now. Yeah. So I would say choose a, a slice instead of thinking about a whole life, choose one storyline from it or one key moment in your life and focus on that rather than trying to imagine a whole narrative. Awesome. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time that you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. I've failed a lot. I think there's no there's no way around it in farming that things will fail and go wrong. And being able to troubleshoot and move forward is an essential part of the job. I have failed by trying to go back to that girl with the pearl earring kind of J. Crew mm. wearing woman in my attempts to find a job that I found satisfying. So I I had a position that seemed to align sort of generally with my, my interests, but I found it to be a really challenging point in my life because I was in corporate hotels, in my company car, driving all day, uh, just doing work on a, on a moment to moment basis that did not meet my, my goals and didn't fill my soul with anything, didn't fill my stomach with anything, but fast food and hotel breakfast food. And so learning from, from that, that it's not just the overall goal of a company or career, but what your job looks like on a daily basis that matters has helped me come to terms with the way that I've built my life currently, which is split between teaching and farming. Nice. And you seem pretty passionate about both of them. 
I am. Yes. I love, I love teaching. I, I specifically love teaching creative writing and also just the written word in general. And I really enjoy farming. And now I get to kind of convey some of the information that I know about farming to younger farmers and crew members at my friend's farm. So that's a really beautiful exchange to be part of as well. Nice. And your biggest success? My biggest success is, I mean, I feel like it's going to jinx it, but it's this property. <laughs> it's it's arriving at a place where at 36 as a single woman, I can uh, afford to begin making this dream a reality in the pandemic real estate market of New England to start a farm, to cut trees down, build a little house. This feels like the culmination of a lot of my passion. So I think the best is yet to come. (laughs) Nice. And what drives you? I'm driven by beauty, which sounds a little strange, but I, I love to observe the natural world and the amazing, gorgeous, sometimes brutal, but often beautiful things that happen there. I also like to create. And I think part of that is writing. And part of that is taking a tomato seed and putting it in soil. And then in a few months, having gorgeous tomatoes to share at the same table that I started the seeds at. So that's something that gets me out of bed in the morning. Nice. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? This is completely off the topic of what we've been discussing today. But the book that I have to recommend is called Into the Silence by Wade Davis. The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. It's about mountaineering after the First World War. And I actually own three copies of this book because I keep, I I love it so much that people give it to me or I I find a new hardcover or new edition that I want. So Mm -hmm. it it is a book about men trying or people trying to make some sense of the world after all order has been destroyed or eliminated for them. So it's an amazing historical book. If anyone's interested in reading such a thing. That might be a good book to read now because of all the unrest that's going on to kind of prep us for what may be coming down the pike. I think so. Yeah. It's, it's about doing kind of shaking things up and doing something different because the thing you're doing isn't working or hasn't worked for you. And it's incredibly well-written. Nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Be creative, try new things. Uh, Don't be afraid to make mistakes and fail and get out there and spend some time underneath the open sky. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Megan. Thank you. And how can our listeners find you, get a hold of you and find your book? My book is available online anywhere that books are sold. If you go to my website, which is meganbaxterwriting.com, I have links to purchase the book either at local bookstores or big online retailers. And I have all of my contact information there as well. My, my email, my social media feeds, uh, it's all up there. And you're welcome to, to check out some of my other writing, which is linked there as well. Perfect. MeganBaxterWriting.com. Awesome. Thank you. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farm girl. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. 
Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.